I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About semi-open relationships. About plastic surgeons. About the most complicated familial relationship in existence. Sisters. (laughs) Disagree. It is about sisters, though. It's about Atlanta. It's about the erotic thriller. It's about the sticky wicket of guilt and temptation. It's about the sticky wicket of bandaged dresses. (laughs) It is about your boys. It's about, I'm not rich. (laughs) I'm just comfortable. It's about your mom dying of cancer. It's about prenuptial agreements. It's about long-standing relationships. Faithful mess. Mm. But mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. ourselves. This week, you may have guessed we are discussing The Marriage Pass by Brianna Cole. A zippy little 221-page read. Trigger warning, we've got violence, we've got sexual assault, we've got self-harm, abortion, and a suicide attempt. So, got a lot of stuff in this soup. Can you really have the best of both worlds? He's rich, successful, and has been faithfully married to his longtime girlfriend for nearly one grueling year. What an ace! Doesn't say that. That's editorializing. Because of Dr. Dorian Graham, too many women is never too much, no matter how loyal his wife Shante has been since their college days. So when she proposes, they celebrate their first anniversary by each spending a no-questions-asked, no-consequence night with their greatest temptation. Dorian is shocked, but can't resist. Especially since Shante's wildcard younger sister, Regan, is gorgeous, uninhibited, and the one who got away. It turns out one sizzling night with Regan isn't enough, yet the more Dorian takes, the more she demands, and the more he suddenly has to lose. Soon, with his mind games being used against him and his every move checkmated, Dorian will be forced to go all in on one last desperate play to win. But winning might just be another way to crash. Titillating. Very exciting. This is definitely a book with a lot of twists and turns. So while I'm sure longtime listeners know this, if this is your first time visiting Womance, we tend to do spoilers. We'll do our best to tread a little lightly. But one spoiler I think we should get out of the way right away is that this isn't really a romance. Now, not being a romance has never precluded a book from being considered a womance. And you can see evidence of that in our episode on Bear by Marion Ingle or the Pisces. So, of course, we're still going to talk about it. The other thing, I think this is a great opportunity for two things. First, looking behind the curtain of womance a little bit and talking about our process, uh, which I think is probably a little unique amongst romance podcasters and secondly talking about what makes something a romance which isn't a conversation we've revisited recently I think we should touch on how we came to read this book how did we come to read this book Morgan so enchanted by the copy that this uh, PR representative uh, or Brianna Cole herself under a different student (laughs) wrote but the description had all of this had a lot of juicy tidbits, but I remember the line that stood out to me the most was just this book, all caps, period. And when we when we received this email, I had just come off of uh, discovering BookTube, and uh, for whatever reason, the algorithm had kind of filtered me into the concept of forbidden or taboo romances. And this sounded like, and is in a lot of ways, one of those books. I was very intrigued and decided to read it. And I think that shows a lot into our process. Like we read a book and found out after reading it that it wasn't a romance and we're still doing an episode about it because we've both got like full-time plus jobs and (laughs) that kind of prevents us from DNFing. Yeah, DNFing. Like we fully commit. Uh, I don't think I would have DNFed this book uh, out for the episode and it's because we don't have time for that uh, in our personal lives, but I think like, I, I, I think of it as a good thing. I wonder if, like, I did have more time if I would do it any other way because I think it's honest. We try to be readers and have, like, an honest experience of, of reading a book, right? Yeah, and I think one of the things that we don't do, and either by training but also potentially by inclination, until coming into the romance community, the idea of, like, 
DNFing or uh, did not finish, which is what DNF stands for, uh, a book just wasn't something that I did a lot. Like a book had to be pretty egregious for me not to finish it because like I saw it as a time investment. And I'm like, I'm already doing this or I had to read it for a class or. And so the attitude that I think Romance Landia has, it's like, nope, not for me. It's like I read the first two chapters. I'm out. <laughs> is uh, struck me originally as very cavalier and then uh, continues to strike me as like, oh man, it's because people are reading so much and they're like, this isn't my tipple. No, thank you. Next. There's so many options out there. Yeah. So I don't know if we would do it differently if we had, you know, the world enough in time. But I think what the structure that we have where it's like we got to get this done isn't a bad structure because we do discover things that are categorized as romances that maybe shouldn't be. And we also have, you know, lovely conversations about books that I might not have otherwise spent the time to critically engage with. Yeah. Oh, and just for the record, we did not receive a PR copy of this book. Just something we, we've we kind of waffled on and getting books for free makes us feel weirdly beholden, you know, return the favor somehow. And it's not that that's ever affected anything we did, but it's always made me feel a little bit weird about it. And I'd rather not feel weird about it. I'd, I'd rather feel completely and utterly entitled to my opinion. And so... <laughs> uninhibited even yeah yeah and so a good way to do that is to like give the author and the publisher some money or you know check it out from the library hush hush if it's especially if it's an old one but we have our integrity here we're kind of annoying I mean I don't know if it's our integrity that makes us annoying tbh but like (laughs) (laughs) I think we're probably annoying to the people who try to sell us ads and then we're like oh no we found out that they like fine their employees for showing up late we're not yeah put them on our show (laughs) we just kind of randomly pick but I will say that the easiest way to end up on the show is to email us womancemail at gmail.com and uh, we love to hear from you guys we've been getting some fun letters from listeners we welcome the opportunity for you to join the conversation that way so this book is interesting at a tight little 221 the fact that it's a thriller it might not surprise you that it's a close third ish with one single character our hero dorian dorian graham sucks in every possible way we're introduced to him in a strip club (laughs) (laughs) like i want since we are uninhibited and i feel no qualms because i bought this book he sucks in every way we meet him in a strip club which does not make him suck he's like chilling with his friends for a bachelor party which is fine i noticed almost immediately that there are a lot of bodies on stage and bodies are talked a lot about and he spends a lot of time talking about and rating the dancers by their bodies which told me pretty immediately that he's not a good guy we find out pretty immediately after that that he is a plastic surgeon in an up-and-coming practice of his own and that his mom is dying of cancer and he's been serially cheating on his girlfriend now wife for over a decade but he's not gonna cheat on her anymore except when he gets head at the strip club but he pays for that and he never goes down on them and like it's fine even though he's never had that conversation with his wife Shantae. Dorian is a great example of how you can go through the motions of being a good person on an individual level but it actually doesn't fucking matter because you're upholding systems. (laughs) So for example he's a plastic surgeon. He has a client come in and he talks her out of plastic surgery and he says I think you're doing this for the wrong reasons I think your husband is a dick and you should leave him so plastic surgery is like a sticky wicket right so there Dorian is a great example of how you can go through the motions of being a good person on an individual level but it actually doesn't fucking matter because you're upholding systems (laughs) With a lot of, so for example, he's a plastic surgeon. He has a client come in and he talks her out of plastic surgery and he says, I think you're doing this for the wrong reasons. I think your husband is a dick and you should leave him. So plastic surgery is like a sticky wicket, right? I've been thinking about this a lot because the TikTok algorithm has decided that I need to hear a lot about breast reductions. 
I'm very busty or whatever. And so I see a lot of these women who are like, I finally decided that I'm going to get a breast reduction. And I'm so ready because, you know, my shoulders hurt, yada, yada. You know, the usual air quotes, good reasons for getting plastic surgery, right? Somehow you're physically limited by your body, right? But then they spend the rest of this like less than one minute video talking about how weird and gross their body looks in a tank top. And it sucks because it's like, whenever you're publicly self-deprecating, especially physically, you end up like, yeah, that's like an attack on me, someone who looks like that. This idea of like plastic surgery being an individual choice for your self-esteem. And I think, you know, the world is fucking hard enough if you can do something for yourself that gets you through it or if it helps you make money. I remember True Life, I'm getting breast augmentation. That girl's boobs paid for themselves within like three months or something ridiculous and increased tips. Here's the thing. You feel that way because of society, right? And by like changing your body to fit that mod or that norm, you're entering that echelon, right? You're leveling up or you're powering out or you're, you know, cashing out, right? As opposed to you're no longer fighting the fight, right? Oh, that's an interesting way of thinking about it, especially in the context that like my algorithms have been talking and showing me about, which is the Khloe Kardashian unfiltered photo and how she's like fighting with the internet to get it pulled off because so much of her money is based on her physical image. And it's interesting that you phrase it as like cashing out, like you're not going to be all in on the chips and fighting society's valuation, especially of women's bodies. That's a really thoughtful way of thinking about it. And I think one of the things that's always really funny to me is that they're very pretty, they make a lot of money themselves, and that they are part of the product or brand that they're selling, which is that you'll be happier if you're prettier or whatever. And the one way that I've ever seen anybody try to like humanize or like deal with the sticky wicket of characterizing plastic surgeons as good people is when they deal with like burn victims and they do like quote unquote good plastic surgeries. But like Dorian Gray doesn't even do that or Dorian Graham. Like we're all eating out of the garbage can of ideology. Like even if you're a burn victim, right? Like a lot of your feelings about your personal appearance are definitely wrapped up in societal norms. But also your way of like moving through the world if you have like physical limitations because of it. A lot of that is societally constructed. Like we have chosen to have stairs instead of ramps, even though people who can walk can still use ramps right but stairs are still our standard right not having an elevator is still acceptable that's all construct and that's all feeding into it I think it's fine if you get plastic surgery because like you have no other choice but to be a part of this system and I and I think yeah it's like cashing out it's not necessarily selling out but you can be like me and sit there and be like no I'm gonna look the way I look and people will have to deal with that that's their own problem if they have a problem but that's exhausting and sometimes you just want to cash out and this woman is there to cash out because of a very small interpersonal relationship and it's like okay you can call her husband a dick but you're standing there like literally raiding her body like Okay, some would argue she wasn't taut and trim, but who the hell expected a grown-ass woman to have a college student's physique? She was still slender, and an in-depth consultation showed Dorian she had just a little jiggle expected of a mother of four. But he certainly saw the fruits of her labors in the gym and her vegan diet. Yeah, it's like she's okay because she's doing everything she can to resist the inevitable. So we know that the problems with her body are in fact inevitable and that makes them okay. Right. And that like makes Dorian like a quote unquote good guy. But like this is a moment where the text is like doing a really good job of being in close third, showing me that Dorian is a trash human and like he's still rationalizing himself. And so I think this is a moment where the text actually doing something quite smart. And like I hate Dorian off the bat. I will say that this book truly understands him as a villain, even as he, in a very Holden Caulfield-esque way, takes up all of the narrative space. This book really enables you to see around him 
which I thought was really smart. Because like we find out really early in the book that his mom is literally dying of cancer and that she has decided not to continue with chemotherapy treatments. And he's like, we have to get her to do it. And her home health aide is like, no, she's tired. She wants to live these last few weeks or months, whatever she has left in a way that like she decides her decision. And he's like, no, I know what's best for her. I'm going to like blah, blah, blah. And then he begins the affair with his sister-in-law. Obsensible heroine. Which is not his wife, but his sister-in-law. And we don't hear from mom for basically 150 pages. And then we are at mom's funeral. <laughs> so then it's like he fucking lost your mom. So they're both really unlikable. But we know that she's unlikable because of all of her externality. So basically what happens, Dorian goes is at a strip club. He sees his sister-in-law there for her birthday party. He thinks she looks very sexy. She's very flirtatious with him. And he ends up driving her home after the Bacchanal. And she comes on to him. And he says no. Because that is nuts. It is melodramatic. It is juicy. You think like surely that's not going to happen. And then it happens. The book is unafraid of any kind of taboo it seems. Uh, Not any kind. But I mean, it's not Marquis de Sade, but it is unafraid of pushing buttons. So this guy, you're like, okay, he's getting a hall pass. He clearly has no problem meeting women who want to have sex with him. This will be interesting because in my mind, I'm still like, oh, it's like a romance novel. Like this will be like an interesting, like second chance story. The conversation around like the rules of the hall pass, like is pretty scant. No, he immediately decides to have sex with his sister-in-law. And then we come back and we act like we can't talk about it, can't ask about it, can't bring it up. And she says her coworker does this. Can you imagine telling your coworker? It's not, she's also like, she works at a bank and it's not like she's like back from a happy hour. I mean, we can make all sorts of assumptions. We find out that this is maybe not a true story coming from her. But so she gives him the hall pass. He immediately decides he's going to have sex with his sister-in-law, who has now started dating his friend, the good friend, right? The bad boyfriend is the one who's getting married. So they go. So he's still like thinking about the hall pass. He thinks it's a trap. We know he's a bad person. And this book knows he's a bad person. Because instead of being weary of like why your wife wants to do this. It's just like we get to have sex with whoever we want for one day. No questions asked. And it's like it's like Fight Club. This is a trap. This is clearly meant to trap me. <laughs> so then they go to resort, a resort in Jamaica and he meets this guy who has three wives. This book is clever. Like, here's the thing. It's not like the book is valorizing anything bad that happens. So he goes to this resort in Jamaica. He's hanging out by the pool and he sees this guy who has three wives. And from Dorian's perspective we know that at least two of them are miserable one is pregnant one is the new wife and the other one's the queen bee and she seems to be doing okay with this situation but one of them is pregnant in Jamaica and like very hot and very tired and like doesn't want to be a part of this honeymoon but this guy is sitting there talking about how like wonderful everything is right this idyllic lifestyle he's built for himself he's such an like the toxicity of masculinity and how it forces you to survive as a man under the strictures of toxic masculinity. Living idealized life, whatever that might mean to you, requires you to be kind of an idiot or at least self-deluded. Self-deluded, right? Because there are so many moments where even this character, Leo, with the three wives, he's really thinking about it and he's really giving his life philosophy to Dorian and Dorian's really thinking about it. How can Dorian's character be so unself-reflective? But he is actually constantly thinking about himself but it's never producing anything good like it's just he's just like it's rationalization rather than reflection and I think you're exactly right to say that's the move that toxic masculinity must make because if you have to enter into the empathy or even fucking sympathy of thinking about somebody else's experience like you might have to reflect on your own choices and actions Dorian does not he's very much a good man to himself 
Yeah. And he has like some pretty nasty jealous because he wants the hall pass for himself, but he doesn't want her to have the same equal privileges. But he knows that that's the wrong reaction. So he doesn't like, even though he's like thinking it and we have the privilege of knowing that he's a double douchebag, like he doesn't say that to Shantae. So that's good, I guess. That is the key mover, rationalization versus reflection. That's brilliant. Well, I was just uh, watching a YouTube video of a diagnosed psychopath, and she was doing an interview, and they were like, could you give us an example? One of the most interesting things about her interview was that she couldn't discern between like a social construct and empathy. And she said, I don't really have empathy. And she's like, it's also difficult for me to then like properly operate because I it's hard for me to like identify a social construct and like not just like totally embody that and rather than like actually understanding it and they're like can you give an example of a time that you did something you don't think other people like a a person without this diagnosis would do and when she was in high school first of all she said she was very successful in high school because she did not care what other people think and the worst thing she could imagine is being an undiagnosed like being a non-psychopath in high school but she was in high, high school, and she was going to teach a swim class. And when she got to the pool in the morning, she saw a baby possum in the pool, and it was struggling to get out. And she thought, I can't teach this class with a possum, a baby possum in the pool. But then she also thought, I don't know what this possum's deal is. It could bite me. It could react violently. It's a wild animal. I don't know what it's going to do. So her solution was, I'm going to drown the baby possum and then remove its body from the swimming pool. And the most practical way to drown it without touching it or giving it like a way out of the pool was to spray it in the face with a hose while it was trying to struggle out of the pool. And she did it. She said she did it for 10 minutes and she just watched the baby possum. And then she finally decided like this possum's too much of a fighter. So she just canceled the class and left the possum in the pool. And what was so interesting is that she said... I know that it's a social taboo to be cruel to animals. And I think some people would think that I was being cruel to the possum. And it was like, no, dude, that's empathy. Like most human beings would watch something struggling and say, just how can I help it the most, right? And your reaction was entirely logical, entirely sensible. But through that lack of empathy, utterly cruel, And like the cruelest it could possibly be. And she was like, I'm not really interested in physically hurting people, but I've thought about it and it hasn't really bothered me to think about. And she was like, and I have tried to physically hurt people, but it was my my rage died out before I was actually able to accomplish it. I think there's a lot there about like the difference between empathy and reflection versus rationalization. (laughs) That's what the difference is. And whenever he's actually pushed to do something that would be difficult for him, all of his empathy flies out the window. Like we don't even find out that his sister-in-law has a son until the son physically appears and he has to mention it, which is so interesting and so telling. And I think this book really understands him as a villain. I I watched um, Promising Young Woman. So one of the things that comes into play in this book is – After he scorns his sister-in-law after an extended affair, she accuses him of sexual assault. He's brought into the police station. When he's finally released, the cops are like, do not contact her, right? Which is like the cool thing all cops do is say, don't do it, and then just kind of let the chips fall where they may, which is exactly what happens. And he's like, of course, I'm going to talk to her. I'm going to kill her. And this whole time he'd been like, she's so different from her sister. I worry about her. She's so fragile and broken. And then the minute like she questioned his authority or his position in life is powerfully questioned by her. He reacts violently. Uh, And there's a scene in Promising Young Woman where our romantic hero is called into question and he or is just like held accountable basically, and told specifically, like, this is what you're going to do to make it right. And he immediately lashes out, right, and is cruel and unreasonable and his his true nature, right? He's cornered. And instead of doing what has specifically been asked of him to exit the corner, (laughs) he decides to react violently. Uh, And of course, that's used to his detriment. 
which is satisfying. If it's not directly in front of him, he has a marvelous way of compartmentalizing. Like, this is a character that, like, I think I've seen other romance quote-unquote heroes compartmentalize in this way, but I don't know that I've ever had to spend an entire book with a rationalization, compartmentalization that, like, never breaks open. Like, he's, like, even as the shit hits the fan, he's, like, the way that he copes with it, he's never troubled. His strategies never change. I will say the build of Regan and like, so what we're dealing with here and what I sensed pretty early on was like a fatal attraction situation. Like he he tells Regan that he, he has chosen her out of all the other girls to be his hall pass. And they, you know, they get this fancy hotel. They have this like lovely dinner. And then, you know, they are starting to have sex. And she says, tell me you love me. It doesn't even have to be true. And he's like, I can't do that. And then the affair continues and she makes the request again. And then he like begins down that road. Starts saying it as he ejaculates, which always makes you feel special. She, it's so clear that she's building a case against him emotionally and physically. And he's so wrapped up in it that he'd like, and he feels so special and so chosen that she would go to such lengths that like, even if it's a lie, like he, she wants his love and attention that much. And it's like, guy, you're not that great. And she's she has more interesting sex with him than her sister does, uh, which is like, and early on, he starts to be like, she looks like her, definitely, but she's different. But it's almost like he's justifying, like, the fact that I want to have sex with my wife's sister really means I want to be having sex with my wife. But she's not giving me what I need. Such a tangled web we weave to rationalize our poor choices. But there's this moment when he's in the police station getting questioned and they say, they ask him about the physical violence and he says, no, I didn't leave any bruises on her. And they show him pictures where she, they had had one last sexual encounter and she had asked that it be rough and it was. But they show him pictures where she has like a bruised jaw and bruises all over her body. And he freaks out and he's like, I would never do that. But if we recall... After their first sexual encounter, she says some stuff about his wife to try ostensibly to get him to stick around, right? She's going to undermine her romantic rival. And he chokes her nearly to the point where she's unconscious. And then he leaves the room. And then he just starts sending, he sends her a text that opens with GM, which took me forever to realize it stood for good morning. So he's like not even spelling out good morning in his apology text for choking her nearly to unconsciousness. And yet he's like acting utterly bedeviled by these like images of her bruised body. And the cop points out like, well, bruises usually, he's like, she didn't leave my house looking like that. And the guy was like, well, bruises take a while to show up. A doctor would know that too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we find out that her bruises are self-inflicted. Let's talk about Regan, our heroine. Air quotes. Regan's a tough cookie of a character in terms of like, because she is genuinely unlikable from the start. Um, Because the only other moment that we get of close third that isn't in Dorian is in the very first chapter where we meet Shantae, who's going to visit her sister at a correctional facility. I think that setting and the interaction and the fact that like Shantae is thinking about all the ways that she's always had to bail out her sister really sets the stage for Regan as the family screw up, the person who's pretty selfish and like isn't thinking about her choices and the way they affect others. The other side of Dorian, which is ostensibly why she can have this affair with her sister's husband and like do the things that she does and like that's set up from the beginning one of three moments that aren't in his perspective opening chapters in Shantae's perspective going to see Regan in prison closing chapters in Regan's perspective and then the end of their sex sexual encounter the end of the marriage pass itself we are in a a distant third on Regan's perspective. That's the only time. It's a it's a good structure. It's something you might want to keep in mind if you are planning on writing a mystery <laughs> because it gives you a false sense of security spending any time in Shantae's perspective. Regan is like so 
Because the moments where the close third breaks with Dorian, we get Regan doing sneaky, mischievous shit, right? So, like, in the moment where he chokes her basically to unconsciousness, he shuts the door and then we see her smiling. Like, I got what I wanted. Well, that's the thing, right? Since it's all from Dorian's perspective, he has made a dichotomy out of these two women, his wife and his sister-in-law. So all of his understanding of Regan is that she's this deadbeat mom stereotype, that she's the whore of the Madonna whore complex, right? She's sexually voracious. And it's like, it doesn't actually, like, she doesn't have to do too much to get him to not think about everything else she's doing. And then at the end of the book, in the final chapter, you're like, you are in Reagan's perspective and you understand that like, of course she didn't want to be unhoused most of the year, right? She has been struggling to get herself into a good place that has caused her to be slightly desperate and she's willing to push the envelope. Her lack of regard for boundaries is not something that's like inborn in her or like a flat personality trait. It's a survival adaptation. And same goes for Shantae. Like she's not some like boring, Christmas-obsessed, suburban, conservative, beautiful, in the right ways, as opposed to the sexy ways kind of woman. She is also... They don't do a nice thing, so I will say conniving. She is conniving. She is strategic. And she is also uh, unmoved by Dorian. And I think that's his downfall is that he never thinks to look more deeply at these two women, that he has not lent any depth to the characters surrounding him. And his mother not wanting to get chemotherapy is a great example of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It also roots, because Dorian's character is so unreflective, it really forces you to see Regan through his eyes, but also through the eyes of this one moment where you know that she's like up to quote unquote no good. And the escalation happens really rapidly. Like there was a moment where I was trying to keep track of time because the hall pass happens right before the Christmas holidays because they're talking about it and like Shantae is obsessed with Christmas and she's got her tree up before it's even Thanksgiving and like all this other bullshit and like you know subtle judgmental ways to be unsupportive of your wife like fuck you um, but then suddenly like we get like the hall pass happens she wants to see him again they're at Shantae and Regan's parents house and then like suddenly Shantae has her fingers in her own vagina and is like watch me and you can touch yourself and it's like it's only been a week and then suddenly she's sucking him off and then it's like we don't even get Christmas and then suddenly there's like this other scene and it's just like where where are we? And also his friend Miles that Regan is ostensibly with and he's still having an affair with her even though he and Miles have been friends for years. Or his, like, the other person who works in his office, Claudia, I don't know if she's a receptionist or, like, the program coordinator. He gets into a physical altercation with a co-worker, Kenny. Clocks Kenny hard because he, like, had sex with Regan. Gets into a grapple. Claudia, his program manager, sees, turns in her resignation. He's like, well, she was near retirement anyway. Like, guys, she left because you're a violent defender. Like, what are you doing? And Yeah, she feels unsafe in the workplace because of you. Right, and your choices and what you've done during a Work day. Everything he does tells everyone else that he's a bad person, but because we're so imbued in his own perspective, like you never get that explicitly stated. But it's like, why do you think your bad boyfriend feels like he can pay for sex for you and that you will accept it? And the whole time he's just like, that guy's crazy, right? And it's like, you're the one doing it. <laughs> What's so interesting to me is that this is a, just to go back to that really perfect pithy distinction, talking about problems with dichotomies, but reflection versus rationalization. Like if you read, you know, the Maltese Falcon, for example, if you had been rational about it, you probably would have seen the end result. Whereas in this mystery, right, in this twist and turn, it only becomes clear upon reflection what are the emotional things that have happened because all of the pieces like in any good mystery are on the board in that first conversation between Regan and her sister all of them all of the motivations all of the backstory that you need to understand what's about to happen 
are right there in front of you, but they are all like emotionally motivated rather than, which I think most things are anyways, but rarely is it rational. Yeah, it's like, it's a lie that the patriarchy sells that we live in like a rational world. And it's like, no, people do things because of the way that they feel. And sometimes that's not rational. To get to this, because like Dorian has choices in his rational versus reflection. And even especially with Shantae, I think, who is much more in on what's happening than one might first realize, certainly Dorian. And so he's witnessed a pretty tough fight between Shantae and Regan at their parents' house. And she's really upset because... Uh, Regan's leaving the dinner for their father's retirement. And he says, without thinking, his eyes went to Shantae's. Shantae acted as if nothing was wrong. Dorian assessed it for a moment longer before he decided to ignore it. And so he knows, like, he's constantly watching her face and, like, the way that her body is acting. Like, he's really aware of her nonverbal communication. But he always has this line where he thought about it and decided to ignore it or he didn't want to engage. (laughs) It's just like... And it happens all the time where it's like that moment where there's like a moment where there could have been reclamation between husband and wife. He just decides not to do it because it gets too much work or he doesn't want to. And I think this book does a really good job of setting that up. Uh, My sympathy was always almost universally with Shantae. Shantae, there was something going on the whole time uh I mean my sympathies are with her but I wasn't necessarily like there was no one in this book that I was like rooting for I wasn't rooting for anybody either and like that's also a very weird experience in reading where it's like I kind of wanted everybody to get a comeuppance because nobody was making good choices (laughs) yeah yeah but I mean it's it's a good it's an interesting it's you know not anything I've read recently Usually there's someone I'm rooting for, even in books like this, and really wasn't rooting for anyone, just wanted to see it play out, which makes it feel, now that upon reflection, like especially voyeuristic. This is a very voyeuristic book. That's one of the things in my notes where it's like, without having an access point or anybody to root for, even Shantae, it's like a very removed viewing experience. And there are a lot of times where it did feel pretty cinematic. And I agree, like there were moments where I'm like, well, who is Shantae having an affair with during all this time? Because she's like trying to create time where she's like, you can do this. And I'm like, is she sleeping with Kenny? Is she with Miles? What's really going on? I'm like, I hope she's happy was like as much animus as I felt for her. Can we start with weirdest? Because I feel like I've been rooting for this book and I want to be really clear-eyed. Like, there are problems. A fake rape allegation story is going to ruffle feathers. Like, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend where her boss was starting a book club with her son, who's like 14. One of the books they were going to read is 1984. And I was like, I would not want a 14-year-old to read 1984, even though I know that it has like this immense value. And the argument was like, oh, well, he'll be reading it with his mom. And it's like, well, what's going to happen when he goes and talks about it with his friends? Like there's too many unknown factors here. I don't want anything to perpetuate an idea that fake rape allegations are common because they're not, which makes sense because think about what you have to go through when you make a real rape allegation. Why would you volunteer for that Uh, just for kicks, right? Or for revenge? That's a lot of effort. Not only is it a lot of effort, and I I 100% agree, like, I was really uncomfortable with that scene, but I think, like, this book played on the trope of that fatal attraction set up and Swim Fan and many others. The continuing iteration of this storyline have made where one of the last moves that the manipulative, terrible Jezebel does is accuse the good man of sexual assault. And I think that's both to show us that she is, you know, a real danger to society, like a woman who would do that is bleh. But I also think exactly, you're exactly right, like this perpetuation, even in in its villainous guise, I think really sets a wrong message about like... Well, uh, her strategies, Reagan's strategies embody all of the things women are accused of, like uh, a suicide attempt for the sake of attention, self-harm in order to, uh, for attention or to frame a man. What's interesting about this compared to Fatal Attraction and its children, (laughs) like Swim Fan, is that the Jezebel is not imprisoned nor is she eliminated at the end of the story, right? Because like, 
oftentimes the framework is the only possible outcome for this is death. And I have to say, it was satisfying to a really dark, rage-motivated part of myself that a character got to do all of the worst things women are accused of for real and got away with it. Like she's sitting on the beach at the end watching her son play in sandcastles. This this book is a cross between Fatal Attraction and Frozen. And I, as far as happily ever afters go, if you can say that this had a happily ever after. But you pointed out this is the first book in a, in a series, meant to be the first book in a series. Uh, yeah, I have no idea where it's going to go from here, but <laughs> who knows? One of my other weirdest parts is that Reagan, in the last chapter, right in her perspective, and she says that she she's pregnant with Dorian's child and she's going to have to leave her current arrangement to avoid blowback from that. And she wants to keep the baby because she did, in fact, fall in love with Dorian through the process of seducing him. That's also one of my weirdest parts. Because uh, I was like, why can't it just be, why does it have to, like, why can't it be clean? Why can't you just like, why can't we have just like, why did we need that? I don't want her to have caught feelings for this fucking dick. Like, he's bad, whatever. Why would you, why would you catch feelings for him? And like, you're so smart and you're like taking care of yourself. And like, I'm glad that you're on the beach and that your son gets to be in the sand and playing. And like, why did we, whatever. And now she's going to like, but it's not only that she's caught feelings for him, but it's also that she's going to bilk him for child support for 18 years. And I don't love that either because that feels like it's playing into negative stereotypes. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't love that. I thought that was pretty negative. And the other thing, because I want to go back to this rape allegation and why it made me so uncomfortable, because I think this book is actually quite smart, too smart even, for this move. Because one of the great things that happens is that Reagan shows up under a false name to his medical practice and has sex with him. But because she's under a false name, she makes it look like he's had inappropriate relations with a patient. And so then she's called the medical board of Georgia and he might lose his medical license. And I was like, that is the sweetest revenge that I can imagine. Because if you lose your medical license, like this guy maybe is never going to be able to practice again. And then like, what else is he suited for after training in medical residency and everything? Like he does, like he has no other prospects and so by ruining him that way I was like oh that's that's devilishly deviant and I love that and it felt like we didn't need any more than that I think why it does work why I would push back is that the rape allegation allows her to extort him for all of his money and he never really questions how she knows exactly how much money he has across multiple savings accounts but she does he's just not thinking clearly she extorts him for that in order to drop the rape charges. But this is not a rational project, right? This is a, an attack on his being. And so to take all of his money and then he finds out that he has lost the means with which to make more money, excruciating. That's the turning of the knife in the back. I think it's, I think it demonstrates that um, the people involved who you may have guessed her, his wife is orchestrating all of this along with her sister, right? Because he cheated on her for 10 years and then the night before their wedding makes her sign a prenup that doesn't have any cheating clause in it. And so she's like, I'm going to get the money however I can. Like, right, this is a personal project. This isn't just about like getting the money and getting out. This has to be a full and complete salting the earth after burning the field project it's true i think this actually brings me to my weirdest part because this book is so short and we're so rooted in dorian's perspective and we've already talked about how it's there isn't anybody that you're really rooting for you're just sort of watching all of these actors make their choices um i didn't like that I didn't know anything more about anybody else. That, like, because of the perspective that we were in, because there's this moment with Shantae where, like, we realize, because I don't even remember how it comes, how we come to realize, either he says it or, or she does, that she, 
the night before they're to be married, he gives her the prenup. Like we knew before that there had been a prenup, but like because of the way that information had been rolled out at the beginning of the book, I had assumed that there'd been a conversation about it and it was shitty, but she'd still agreed. But like the idea that he would submarine her the night before their wedding with a prenup that didn't have a cheating clause. And therein the love story lies. (laughs) Yeah. And he calls her mom, mama. That was one of those moments where it's like, it made me realize how isolating romance novels can be and how when I find a book that I really like, it usually revolves a cast of characters that are also commenting on the story. I think we talked about this recently with a book where it's like, what's so great about a fully fledged secondary character is that they produce more information about the primary characters that way we learn a lot more about the world and we learn more about the relationship we have quite a few characters here but they don't produce that same effect and because they didn't i was able to see what the structure of a secondary and what i am personally looking for in a secondary character and this book really highlighted that lack for me where i'm like there is no one in shante's life other than her sister in the very first chapter telling her what a shitbag this guy is and he's a shitbag. Yeah. Uh, sexiest part. I have to say, sometimes the mechanics of the sex in this book get confusing and don't really bear out. But there are, like, there's a, a part where she returns to her to his house because she's living with them after her supposed suicide attempt. And she brings home a guy who's different from Kenny, who she left with. And the guy starts to perform oral sex on her on the couch while Dorian watches. And then he goes and she blows him while this guy is going down on her. And then he just tells the guy he should leave. And then they, Dorian and Reagan have sex. Like there's lots of like stuff I haven't read before, (laughs) but not that we read a ton of like taboo sex romance novels interesting like I agree I hadn't read a scene like that but like the fact that he just says like you need to go now this guy like buttons up and leaves and then they immediately go into like yeah the logistics of some of these sex scenes like there's this one in my notes where it's like she was still wet from her prior orgasm and I'm like what prior orgasm and then like I flip back and there's no mention of this prior orgasm so I'm like where am I he has sex with her up against a wall and then he pulls out and comes on her back, but earlier it said that she wrapped her legs around him. So were they having like wheelbarrow sex and she was like holding <laughs> on to the wall? Like I was trying to figure out. I was like, this is wild, you know, which might be the case, but like the mechanics just didn't do it for me much. Um, yeah, the mechanics of the descriptions were hard. I found myself most titillated when she was touching her own body, that she took pleasure in her own body, I found really titillating. So those would be my sexiest parts, I think. What's intriguing about this book is that it's like not fearful of the of the taboo and like she a like a couple days after having sex with him on the marriage pass he goes into he's at her parents house she's there for her dad's birthday and he closes the door of a bathroom behind him and I remember being like oh my god he's at his in-laws house like about to do this like that's wild and I think like that's wild is is where the (laughs) appeal comes from because like you don't even get like the male gaze appreciation because Dorian is so uh unpleasant it's unpleasant like he really he's dehumanizing everyone around him all the time when he talks about his mother and and how they were stable his father was a cop who died in the line of duty but he had um a sex worker in the car with him and so the police covered up that fact and he like mentions in passing that his mother was an alcoholic a high functioning alcoholic never comes up again and it's like that awareness but lack of reflection that is so like that also comes through clearly whenever he's describing women even if I can't read a description of a woman from his perspective and then that's clear to you, like it's part of the whole gestalt. Like it's almost like reading um, like a J.G. Ballard where like everyone's terrible and <laughs> everyone's terrible and horny all the time. Like it's not it's not pleasant, but it's riveting. Yeah. So romance or no man's? a no man's for me. I'm not going to recommend it. I'm not sad 
that I read it. I think you're right to say that it was riveting. I read it very quickly. It is a quick read. I anticipated liking it more than I did. Um, I don't, I might investigate this author again for a different text, but because Dorian is so terrible and because we're so much in his perspective and because we don't get Regan or Shantae as much as I would need, what this book ended up doing for me was like, helping me understand the structure of romance better because it doesn't like it conforms but also breaks and so I felt very much like I was going to school with this text but if you are into melodrama and like not a happily ever after that you are like kind of promised with the romance genre then like this isn't the book for you I wouldn't recommend it as a romance I would say picture this you're about to go on vacation you've been working hard You got work on the brain. It's so hard. It takes an average of 10 days to actually reset your mind frame. I would say a good way to shorten that 10 days is to read this book on the plane to your vacation. (laughs) Like it's short enough that you can read it on a plane. It's riveting enough that you would be able, it would distract you from everything else that's going on around you and your work life back home. Yeah, it's, I mean, it has like, and I think you're right. Like, it really is not a romance written by someone who really understands romance as a genre and as a type, as a, as a, as a structure. Like, the bones of romance are within this book. I would not call it a romance. And we've read romances that I would say absolutely are romance with two unlikable characters. Beast by Judith Ivory comes to mind immediately, as it so often does for me. But I think, like, I would say it's a romance. I think it just fits. It's like nothing I've ever read before. I would love people who read romance. I would love to, you know, get their feel for it. But I I think it would be difficult to read this book thinking, like, I'm going to get a happily ever after or thinking like this is like I at least knew it was going to be taboo going into it. Yeah. And like I would say that I knew I wasn't going to get a Romance Landia approved HEA by the end of chapter one. Right. Right. I knew like I I will say this didn't offend my expectations. Right. There you go. Changed my expectations as I was reading it. But again, like in terms of a romance, there's just like. Mm-mm. I learned a lot and I, I I feel like this was a good book for me to read, but like I, I don't know that I would recommend it to <laughs> human beings wanting to read a romance. I will agree it's transporting and I feel like I learned a lot about the geography of greater Atlanta, which was really fun, but no, not for me. Uh, and I was surprised. I, I was surprised. I didn't know how we were going to get to where we were getting there were even whenever I was like, oh, I see what's going on here. The fact that they like took his medical life. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. That was the gut punch I was waiting for. I was like, yeah, there are plenty of surprises. And like as much as we've talked about this relatively short novel, as much time as we've spent on it, I think people would still be surprised by certain aspects of the story. Agreed. So I, I would say it's a romance for me. Yeah. All right, with that, uh, go ahead, loosen those stays. But never your principles. Mwah. Mwah. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.